Hey everybody, today on Rotto Runs Through, it is time once again for the Rankening. Yes, episode 7 of the series where I take my entire collection of games and start comparing them A-B style. This game versus that game versus the other game. I spent a little bit of time describing what they are because chances are there's several of these games that I'm about to talk about you may never have heard of, depending on what the Pub Meeple ranking engine wants to throw my way. And... Hopefully, you will enjoy. This is the uh, first time you've seen this. Don't start here. Hit that eye up in the top right corner screen or go follow the links down in the show notes to start from the beginning because we're jumping right midway through as I'm having some potato chips. Jen is in the back reading and eating potato chips. She gave me a handful of these right before I started recording. I should not have taken them. That was not a smart choice on my part. Now I'm very thirsty, but that's okay because nothing... Can stop the ranking. Let's get over to the browser. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code SPOTIFY for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Right, so welcome to the Pub Meeple Engine. I'm already logged in. Load up. I'm 7% of the way, folks. Hey, what a coincidence. Um, in seven episodes, I've done 7%. I guess that means there's going to be 100 episodes, right? Is that how it works? I don't know. But boy, these are stuck in my teeth now. I'm already regretting it, but uh, it was delicious. Folks, let's get going. Let's compare and contrast Carcassonne the Castle versus Pathfinder Adventure Card Game Rise of the Rune Lords base set. And, um, okay, Carcassonne the Castle is the best version of Carcassonne there has ever been as far as I'm concerned, um, which is a shame because it's a two-player only version, so a lot of people out there won't be able to enjoy it because they need to play with more. But it's better than... I mean, I've, I haven't played all of the spinoffs, but I've played a bunch of them. I just played the new cooperative one not too long ago. And Carcassonne is is great. It certainly deserves its place in the Pantheon. But what Carcassonne the Castle, which was actually designed by Reiner Knizia, does is... Uh, it, it adds two features. One, it completely encloses the space where you can build your tiles. You've got these castle walls you have to build within, which instantly creates more fun and tension and interesting decision-making. Um, now, this is not the only one. I mean, Carcassonne the City did this as well. But more importantly, what Carcassonne the Castle does is one of the most brilliant gameplay mechanisms I've ever seen, and I've hardly ever seen it on any other game. That is the idea that along the victory point track, which is what the castle wall is, um, there are certain spots, space 10, space 17, space 32, whatever, where... If, when you are scoring points, if you can score the exactly correct amount of points to land on one of those super spots, not to get past it, not to say, oh, I scored seven points, but I needed five, oh, as I pass it, you have to get, I mean, if you are five steps away from the next one of these bonus spaces, you got to get exactly five victory points, or four points and then one point, or whatever it might be, so you can land exactly on that and get a bonus tile, and these are hugely powerful. And it creates such an interesting um, play space, because, of course, Carcassonne is traditionally all about making big, 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 big things and then scoring them, and you still want to do that in this game, but you know what? If you're going to land fairly close to one of those, you want to make sure that, okay, after I have that big scoring, now I want to score three points, please, so I can get a bonus tile. It's awesome. 
I more games should do this because it just uh, so elevates Carcassonne far above what it used to, what its base game is. And that's why it's the best Carcassonne there is. Now, Pathfinder the Adventure card game is, for a while, it was a very popular series of fantasy cooperative adventure card games where you bought the base set and then you bought little expansions. And ostensibly, it was supposed to, uh, you know, its original marketing talked about how, hey, we're going to recreate the pen and paper role-playing experience in card form. And whoever decided that was a good marketing campaign made a bad choice because it's not that at all. It's just a fun, fast-playing, very satisfying game where uh, it's a deck builder, a slow deck builder, where you build a deck of cards that represents your fantasy adventure character taken from the Pathfinder universe over multiple sessions. Dozens and dozens of sessions if you keep buying the expansion content so they can go on more and more adventures. And you just slowly add more and more cards that you've collected along the way to your deck and get rid of some old ones and level up your characters and all that kind of stuff. And um, it's all towards the purpose of fighting a bunch of bad guys. Uh, the way the game is generally works is you've got several decks of cards full of encounters that you have to face. Sometimes they're bad guys, sometimes they're locked treasure chests, whatever it might be. And when it's your turn, you reveal a card and um, can you use the cards in your hand to be able to deal with that card effectively? And a lot of it is, can the cards you have in your hand, if you play them, will they give you enough dice of different types to be able to roll to beat whatever it is? And what's actually super satisfying about this game is you will often find yourself rolling four, five, six dice. And not just all D6s, all manner of dice. D20s and two D4s and a D6 and a D12. Roll them all and see what you get. And I won't deny that that's just fun. I mean, roll to resolve is certainly one of my least favorite mechanisms, but I'll give it a pass here because it's just so joyous. And Jen and I always very much appreciate the idea of this slow drip feed leveling up our characters from game to game to game to game. Um, but that said, it is a fairly simple game. It's fun. Uh, it's an expensive game if you really want to get into it because, yeah, just the base set, you'll be done with that pretty quick and you're going to have to start paying for expansion content too. So all things considered, I think I'm going to swipe left and go for Carcassonne the Castle as the better of these two. Uh, but they're both nice, and you know, kept both of them in my collection, right? I mean, if it's not if if it's in my collection, it's on this list. Otherwise, I mean, so I, I think these are all great games, the some of the best games of all time, quite frankly. Okay, now let's talk about Twa, certainly one of the best games of all time in my top ten forever, versus Overboss, a boss monster adventure. Twa is gonna win this one sorry one of my top tens of all time but uh still to briefly describe it this is a game where we're trying to help the city of Twa recover from a series of disasters and you know increase our own standing in the community as well by um drafting dice and uh that represent workers that we can combine in different ways to activate different buildings in the city to uh you know solve problems and I'm, I'm just so scratching the surface. There is so much to Twa, but I've talked about it so many times over the years. The thing that really stands out about it is uh, the dice at the beginning of a round that come into the game are based on, well, if I've sent certain of my workers to certain buildings, they'll generate certain dice. And then I roll those dice and they're in front of me. Just because they're in front of me doesn't mean they're my dice. Because if it's somebody else's turn, they can buy my dice from me. They can uh, bundle them up and take them away and give me coins that I can then use to buy dice from other people. And a lot of people think that that's like a really aggressive take that style of gameplay. But Jen and I have never felt that way. We've never felt like, oh, it's not like these dice, just because they happen to be on my side of the table, belong to me. 
It's just the ones that, hey, if I wanted them, they're free. All the other dice around the table, they cost me money. And the same thing is true. Um, the dice in front of me are the ones that cost you money. So it's really cool. It's such an amazing game. It's got a really great expansion with the Ladies of Trois, and I love it. Overboss, the Boss Monster Adventure, is one you might not have heard about because it had the misfortune of coming out right around the same time as Cascadia, which ultimately went on to win the Spiel des Jahres. And it's like, yo, uh, I don't know if it's sold a million copies yet, but it's sold a lot. It's a big monster hit breakthrough. And here's the deal. I think Overboss is better than Cascadia. And why do I draw that comparison? Because they're the same basic game. It's a, an entwined drafting game where you've got a bunch of tiles combined with, um, well, in Cascadia, you've got nature tiles from, you know, the, the Cascadia region of Northwest Ameri or you know, Northwestern American continent. And every turn you have to grab a an environment tile and a uh, animal tile, and hopefully they match well, but they often don't. Overboss is the same thing, except you're making a Legend of Zelda 16-bit dungeon overworld adventure space. And so you've got creepy graveyards and dungeon entrances and towns and all kinds of stuff that are combined with monsters like skeletons and goblins and stuff. And you always have to make the tough choices. Now, me, I think Overboss is better than Cascadia for a few reasons. One, they, um, it's a, a tinier space, so you're really constrained, and it makes it a much more challenging game. Two, and this is increasingly challenging, the tiles are four-sided, whereas in Cascadia they're hexes. And four-sided tiles means you only have, in a given tile, four opportunities to put something next to it to score points off of it, which, again, ups the challenge level, ups the tension level. Every draft in uh, Overboss, a boss monster adventure, is so tension-filled. And while Cascadia is brilliant, Overboss is even better. All that said, I'm sorry, I still got to give it to Twa. It's one of the 10 best games of all time. But Overboss, Boss Monster Adventure, if you like Cascadia, but you wish it was set in a, uh, you know, uh, an original video game universe and that it was much more tension-filled and challenging, then you might want to check out Overboss, A Boss Monster Adventure. Twa is the winner, though. Next up, Above and Below from designer artist Ryan Lockett versus Santa Monica from designer um, Josh Wood. And I apologize, I do not know the artist. Mm. This is an interesting one. Okay. Above and Below was the first game in what is now, I think, become a trilogy from Ryan Lockett, where he's combining Euro-style gameplay mechanisms. Uh, in this game, it's it's kind of a take on worker placement where we're trying to build up uh, a series of uh, you know, towns above ground and also expanding caverns below ground to explore. But the exploring is what's interesting because we spend an equal amount of time sending our workers out not to help build the town, but to explore those caverns and literally have little narrative adventures where you have to roll dice and, and consume resources and read story snippets to each other and all that. And it's lovely and it's gorgeous. And I think the most interesting thing about it is the worker placement. When you're playing the worker placement half of the game, uh, there's this very cool thing where the workers don't just automatically come back. They come back exhausted and it takes a while before they can work for you again. I really like that quite a bit. Santa Monica, on the other hand, is a very, very cool... Uh, are they cards? I think... I forget if they're cards or tiles. I'm pretty sure they're cards. But it's a tile-laying game, just in card form, where every turn you're going to draft cards and add them to your own little perfect beach boardwalk in your section of Santa Monica. And every card has particular types of cards it wants to be next to. There's also these cool little um, 
uh, tourist meeples. They have like sunglasses and cameras and whatnot. They represent the different things they want to do. They want to move around on this boardwalk that you're building to get to the right building so you can score points. And it's really good. It's fun. It's fast. It's very simple and quick to play and really satisfying. So, of the two, I think I'm going to give it to Santa Monica. Because, I mean, nothing against Above and Below, uh, but Above and Below is kind of like the first time Ryan Lockett experimented with this mix of narrative and Euro, and he's done it so much better since then. And there are some things about Above and Below are like, well, that's kind of weird that there's like no resolution to the story snippets and stuff like that. Whereas Santa Monica is just about perfection in tile-laying or card-laying drafting format. And, uh... And actually, I grew up in uh, northern central California, so I have, uh, you know, I mean, Santa Monica is down south, but I, I just love the California coast and all of that. So it has kind of a nostalgia feel for me, too. With all that combined, I'm going to give it to Santa Monica. Next up, Sheepy Time versus Fresco. Oh, my goodness. Okay. Fresco, one of the all-time greats. It is a worker placement game where we are... Michelangelo-esque artisans trying to restore a fresco of a church... But that doesn't do the game justice. Really, what this is, this is a everything I just described, simulation. Because you live the life of this artist. You choose when you're going to wake up in bed. How much time are you going to spend going to the local theater, entertaining yourself? Uh, how, much, uh, how, how much work do you put on your... Uh, your little workers that represent your apprentices, uh, you know, or, do you, or, or are you going to be cranky because you don't have enough apprentices to get all the work done? Um, all this kind of stuff. And it's a very fun, very thematic game with a real focus on, you know, it's a, it's a Euro style good, harvest goods to convert them into points style game. But uh, because we're actually trying to restore fresco, the goods we're harvesting is different colored cubes that represent different paint. And ultimately, we have to mix those paints together to get super paint so we can um, target certain spots of the fresco that we're trying to restore. It's great. And what really makes it fantastic is the worker placement is simultaneous selection. We all decide behind a screen, right, where am I going to send my apprentices? How am I going to plan out my day? And then everybody reveals at the same time, and then we work it out, and it's fantastic. Oh, and it comes with also, it has a bunch of great expansions. It came with a bunch of different modules built in, so there's a lot of setup variability. Really nice. Then let's talk about Sheepy Time. Now, this is a more recent game from publisher AEG. This is a very, here's the deal. It looks like it's a game for kids. It is not. It is surprisingly, I mean, I'm not going to say it's a super heavy, crunchy game, but there is surprising depth to it. It is a rondelle game where we are trying to move sheep around a little rondelle, landing in certain spots to activate different wedges on this rondelle. But going all the way around the rondelle, uh, at the end of it, there's a literal fence. And since we're moving little sheep, we're trying to get the sheep to jump the fence because we're trying to help somebody go to sleep because it's sheepy time, sleepy time. The thing that makes this game special is as we go around the rondelle over and over and over again and more sheep jump over the uh, the fence, the individual wedges along the rondelle get upgraded. Additional actions get put on there based on our choosing. So um, you then start getting into situations where, okay, I really want to hit that particular wedge because it's been upgraded for the stuff I need and will I be able to put myself in that situation? It's neat. It's very fun. Um, it's interesting. Both these games come with a uh, little module so you can get a little bit more setup variability from game to game. So I like them both quite a bit. I really love Rondells. 
And Sheepy Time is a wonderful rondelle. I, I, I highly recommend it. Um, or just go watch my run-through of it if you want to know more about it. But at the end of the day, I think I'm going to have to give it to Fresco. Fresco is one of the first games that made Jen and me fall into hardcore, fall in love into modern designer board gaming. But putting that aside, I am such a huge fan of simultaneous action selection mechanisms. One of my favorite things of all time, that whole figure it all out, think you know what your opponent's going to do, and then reveal, like, oh my gosh, I can't believe you're going to the market, I didn't think you were going there. Uh, it creates so much fun and variety. I'm going to give it to Fresco over Sheepy Time. Okay. <clears throat> Ooh. Next up, uh, Shadowrun Crossfire versus Snowdonia. Now, Snowdonia, I would have to say, I think I originally put it on my top 10 greatest worker placement games of all time. And uh, I don't know if it would still, I mean, because that was a long time ago I made that list, but it would still be in the running. It's a beautiful game where you have very few workers, and yet you get so much done. This is a Euro like so many where we are harvesting resources to convert them into points, but we are trying to make the Snowdonia line over the uh, the Welsh Alps in Snowdonia, or not the Welsh Alps, but the mountains of uh, Wales. And um, the really interesting thing about this game is the actions we're trying to do with our very simple uh, small selections of workers, although we can get a few more workers over time, and, um, and there's some other things that really kind of mix it up with the worker placement. But what's really special about this game is it's a multi-stage process to lay the track, which is what we're trying to do, and, and make the Snowdonia line through the Welsh mountains. Uh, first, we have to uh, clear out. You have, you have to flatten out the land. Then you have to um, you know, get the resources there. Then you have to lay the track. Then we have to build stations at certain points along the track. And the thing is, no one player can do all these things. Inevitably, you're going to do stuff on your turn, whether it's clearing out rubble or laying track, that's going to set me up perfectly on my turn. And that is really satisfying. The interactivity, the interplay between players, where we're constantly creating opportunities or worried about creating opportunities for each other. And then the other cool thing about it is the weather plays a huge part in it, which is very thematically appropriate. I, Jen and I, we have traveled Wales in a camper van, and I can certainly speak to how mercurial the weather can be. When we tried to go up on the Snowdonia line, it was snowed in, we couldn't see a thing. Or not snowed in, uh, fogged in, we couldn't see a thing. And um, that's reflected in the game, because every round, there's going to be a new weather, whether it's clear or cloudy or rainy, and, um, and that's going to affect uh, how you can do your worker placement. But the brilliant thing about this game is, you don't just see what's coming this week but next week and the week after as well so you can do lots of planning oh it's going to be rainy for the next two weeks i gotta really focus on this right now um and i love that extra level of planning that it brings through the weather system it's great and it's had a billion little expansions over the years highly recommend it shadow and crossfire on the other hand is another game that has been in my top 10 games of all time for quite a while it is my highest ranked cooperative uh ed fantasy adventure deck building card game there is with such good reason i mean this game is fast jen and i we can play a game from start to finish including getting the box out and everything in like 20 minutes and it's so rough it's so challenging it is widely regarded as one of the most challenging cooperative games that has ever come out and a lot of people think the game is unbeatable and that it's hot garbage and to them i always just say hey the designers win 90 percent of the time 
So it's skill. It is not luck. Um, and if you are think you've lost because of luck, you really lost because of a choice you made four rounds ago that um, puts you in a bad situation so you weren't prepared to deal with some calamitous event. And I love the game because it is so brutal. And I, I, you know, whether we win or lose, it feels like, okay, this is a reflection of us. My favorite thing about the game, though, is, you know, when we're playing cooperatively, we're trying to survive a botched shadow run. Uh, you, know, or a, 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 you know, it's a science fiction fantasy uh, mashup world where we were on a job, it went wrong, and we're just trying to escape the city with every bounty hunter in the world coming out to get us. And we're just trying to survive through multiple rounds as more and more bad guys attack us. Couldn't be simpler. And the gameplay itself is pretty simple. It's uh, we uh, it's we start with a small deck of cards. Over the course of the game, we'll buy maybe three or four cards. But it's such a small deck. Just every card you buy is so crucial. If you buy the wrong cards, you will lose. And you really have to be smart about how you use those cards to fight all the stuff. Um, but the beautiful thing is, if one of you goes down and there's only one player, or a two-player game, if there's if everybody goes down and there's one player left, the game doesn't end. Instead, what happens is every bad guy that's still alive jumps on that one player. And if that player can survive one round with every bad guy jumping on them, then that is called a mission abort, which means we don't get the full experience points, but it's still considered a win. And it's that one person, the the last orc or elf or whoever you are standing, pulled their entire team out to safety. And honestly... That is almost a more fun way to end the game, a quasi-loss, than actually winning the game. Because it's such high-stakes drama, and we love it. And then we also love the fact that, you know, this is a game we've played probably 70 times now, and we've been slowly leveling our characters up every time we play, provided we don't lose. As long as we win or we get one of those aborts, um, we get closer and closer to leveling up and getting putting more stickers on our characters and all that, and we love all of that, too. Oh my gosh, I just realized uh, the battery's almost dead. Hold on, folks. Phew, that was a close one. We are, where are we? We're at the Arches National Park. It's an overcast day, which is why we're not out looking at stuff. Uh, so I just figured, hey, I'd spend the afternoon uh, doing this and working on the podcast. But it's an overcast day, so I'm not getting much juice from the uh, the solar panel that we've got outside. Um, and I had unplugged the laptop that I'm recording with for a little bit, and I forgot to plug it back in before I started filming because we were trying to charge some other stuff because we just got the the 100-watt panel that's trying to power everything in this place, but it's an overcast, cloudy day, but it's okay. Don't worry. My power is back up. Anyway, that's it. Snedonia versus Shadowrun Crossfire. Man. See, here's the deal. I think Snedonia is arguably the better game. The objectively superior design. It's got more interesting things built into it. Whereas Shadowrun is just kind of a... It's a fly-by-the-seat-of-your-pants, high-stakes, high-speed adventure game in card form. And I think I enjoy it because of the ride I go on and less because of the mechanism. All the mechanisms are great. I think Snedonia has better mechanisms, but I still think Shadowrun Crossfire provides an, a greater overall action-packed, adventure experience. So that's why I'm going to give it Shadowrun Crossfire. Okay, let's go on to to the boldest versus Jaipur. That is an interesting matchup. Um, right, okay. So Jaipur, probably a lot of people have heard of. This is, a lot of people consider it to be the best two-player couples card game of all time. Although most people still think that probably goes to Lost Cities by Reiner Knizia, but I can totally see it. I mean, personally, I would put Jaipur over Lost Cities, but the the Jack they, they didn't ask me that question. They didn't have me rank those two. 
Jaipur, though, is a very simple set collection card game where there's largely two types of cards you're dealing with. Um, these resource cards, you know, the, the stuff you're trying to get from the market and getting sets of them and racing to get them sooner so you can get bonuses quicker that are better and all that. But then the other type of cards are the camels. And if you're collecting camels, too, you can use them as a way to grab a whole bunch of cards all at once. And it's a very, very cool, fun system. Fast, uh, quick to set up and play, and just always engaging. The boldest is very different. The boldest is a, um, what would you call it? I guess I'd call it a programming game. It's basically set in a far-flung future after, you know, we, you know we've set, we're seeing so many of these. This one came out quite a while ago, so it's kind of ahead of the curve because these days, every year we get three or four more euros with the, hey, um, humanity is rebuilding from the rubble and we don't understand how all this ancient technology works and we're simple primitive people now. And, um, you know, the boldest did the same thing. Uh, and... Um, Basically, we've got a village that's trying to survive in this rough world where there's robots all over the place. They're trying to kill us. And every round, we have to send out certain people out into the wilderness to get the resources. We need to thrive and survive and grow and all of that. But what we do is we have all these cards that represent the uh, different members of our tribe. And every round, as part of setup for the round, we are each, if I recall correctly, each going to pick three? Is it three? It's been a while since I played. I'd have to look at a picture. Uh, but anyway, we're going to set up a certain number of our tri members who are going to be the ones who go out. And other ones are going to stay home. And some people, like cooks, are much better at staying home than they are going out and building up the morale of the village rather than going out and facing all the dangers. Uh, but I mean, the thing is, everybody can see all the dangers. So it's kind of like, hey, we're doing this programming thing of what people are we going to send out. We're doing it in secret. We'll reveal at the same time. But at the same time we're doing this, we're also kind of engaged in an auction because, um, you you know, there's different lanes we're going on and which people are we sending to which lane. So who's going to get first dibs on stuff? It's very sharp. Jen and I liked it quite a bit. It's, I mean, obviously because I've kept it all this time. And uh, yeah, I, I, go check out my run through to see more. This is one that definitely, I'm not quite sure why it slipped under the radar and a lot of people didn't hear about it. But I think it's great. In fact, if you're going to ask me, hey, what do you want to play right now? Jaipur or the boldest? I'd say the boldest. So it gets the nod. Alrighty. Then we've got Isle of Cats versus Tybor the Builder. Alrighty. Isle of Cats is one of the greatest tile layers of all time. Um, it's been uh, usurped, is that right? Supplanted, replaced for me now by uh, Isle of Cats Draw and draw and explore explore and draw the roll and write version of isle of cats but the original isle of cats is still fantastic it's got so many really cool expansions and whatnot but what is it it is there's two halves of the game we're, we're coming to an island of mystical cats trying to save them before the pirates show up and burn the island down right that's the situation and um we're, there are two halves of the game are first of all there is a card draft where we're you know set one aside hand the rest to the opponent trying to get the ideal cards for a given round so we can get in there and get all those cats once we got those cats, they're very cool polyomino tiles that we have to then um, puzzle together on the deck of our ship and try to get the right cats next to each other or get the, ra the cats to cover up the rats so we don't have rats on board and all that. So it's a, it's a very sharp, um, economic, Euro-style card drafting game fused with an excellent tile laying game. And these two uh, great tastes taste great together. Highly recommend it. Oh, and then also, the interesting thing is, uh, if you want, you can really simplify and streamline down the game to make it a really great gateway-style game, too. We played it um, in that circumstance, and it works wonders. Tybor the Builder... Oh, that's interesting! Tybor the Builder is one half of Isle of Cats. It's just 
the card drafting. Oh, I've got these hand. I'm going to keep one. I'm going to hand the rest over, and I'm going to hope I get one of those back kind of thing later on. It is a pure card drafting game where every card is multi-use. You're trying to grab those cards um, based on the different icons on the different sides and corners of them so that you can harvest the resources to help Tybor build up the community. And it's, it's, it is, it's got to be one of the best pure uh, what do you call it? Closed hand card drafters ever. I mean, Isle of Cats has card drafting, but really that's just kind of an engine to the deck building. Whereas Tybor, it's all about that card drafting, getting the right sets of cards to getting the right actions together, and it's absolutely brilliant. And the thing that really elevates Tybor is it actually comes with a little, I forget, I think five-chapter mini-narrative campaign you can play through. Where when you get to Chapter 2, you're introduced to these people, and once you finish Chapter 2, because there's a different objective to complete it, whether you have to make, I don't know, brick houses now instead of uh, you know make uh, farmland or whatever it might be. The characters you met, then they become cards that you can play and draft for in future rounds. And you can even make simple decisions. There's like some bra very simple branching narrative stuff too. This is not, you know, Nebula award-winning uh, Pulitzer Prize-style writing. It's very, very simple, but it really elevates the game, and I love it for it. Wow. Here's the deal. As a pure car closed-hand card drafting game, I would say Tybor is the superior example of the form. There's more interesting stuff going on with the cards. Uh, and it's just it's just so elegant and clean. Isle of Cats, ha when you play it full-on, has a lot of stuff going on. It's almost a little top-heavy. Whereas uh, Tybor is just clean and beautiful and elegant. But I can't deny just how great the tile-laying is. I mean, it's honestly, it's why uh, the Isle of Cats roll and write, which is just pure tile-laying and a little bit of drafting and simplifies, I, I like it more. Ah. <sighs> But yeah, there's no two ways about it. If I could only own one of these, it would be Isle of Cats. Because, hey, it, do, it does have the card drafting of Tybor. Not quite as good as Tybor, but then it has amazing card drafting, too. So we'll give it to the cats. Let's hear it for the cats. Let's give the cats a hand. Okay. If you're an athlete, you know the greatest motivator of all is the fear of letting your teammates down. After all, a team is only as good as its weakest link. So you owe it to those wearing the same jersey as you to be your best every time you step on the field. That's why there's no vape in team. When you vape, you can expose your lungs to toxic chemicals that can damage your lungs. If you're a step behind, the team's a step behind. Brought to you by The Real Cost and the FDA. This episode is brought to you by Reese's Peanut Butter Cups. In breaking news, leading scientists worldwide are conducting experiments to determine if Reese's Peanut Butter Cups are the perfect combination of peanut butter and chocolate. However, it appears the study was inconclusive, as the scientists couldn't help but eat all the Reese's. Because when you want something sweet, you can't do better than Reese's. Find Reese's now at a store near you. Next up, we've got Flourish versus Gold West. Another closed-hand card drafting game. Flourish is a very, very interesting game. Where, yeah, I'm going to keep one. I'm gonna... It's actually interesting. There's a little bit more going on. Um, because... What was it? Oh, it's been a while since I've played it. I remember they had some special rules for two-player. But it was this notion... Oh, I'm trying to remember now. How did it work? Yeah, I'm, 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 Basically, we're trying to make a grid of cards in front of us that represents a beautiful, bucolic, 
garden with um, trees and shrubberies and all kinds of stuff like that. And it's beautiful and gorgeous and it's fun. And the tiling, although they are cards, is really good. Very satisfying game. And again, like Isle of Cats before it, it's driven by a card drafting system. I can't for the life of me remember what it is, though. Hold on a second. Okay, I went and looked it up, and I took the opportunity to have a few more potato chips, which I shouldn't have done, because once again, my mouth is just full of salt now, and I didn't get any more water, but we'll, we'll muscle through. So the interesting thing about this one is you got a handful of cards. You're going to pick one for yourself that you're going to play this round. You're going to pick ones for your neighbors as well. You're not going to give the rest of your hand to the player to your left or your right. You're going to say, oh, you get this one and you get that one. And then you keep the rest for a future turn. And then you know, your neighbors are doing the same thing. And this is such a cool idea. Uh, a really, really fresh, fun way to mix it up. And I absolutely love it. And then it's got great production values. And it's just super duper sharp. It was one of my faves of the, of the year that we first played it. Now, sadly... This is a tough one because this is going up against Gold West, which is uh, J. Alex Kevern's probably masterpiece, one of the greatest games that Tasty Minstrel Games ever published. And this is uh, you know, set in the American uh, frontier days of the West. It is a Euro-style game where we are gathering resources from a mine to be able to claim territory and build up towns and settlements and all of that. The most important thing about it is the way we get resources, though, because they're represented by a literal mine shaft, and the more valuable ones, they come in deeper down, which means it's going to take longer for me to be able to get them. And so this is a game of ver of short-term planning. I could get these right now, but they're not that great, but I'd be able to use them to do what I want to do. Or instead, am I going to set myself up for three rounds from now, I'll get this combination of things and I'll be able to use it. But will the world have changed by the time we get three rounds from now? And if that sounds at all familiar, it should. Uh, Gold West really gives me a lot of Macau vibes. Uh, Macau has the uh, Windrose that does the same kind of thing of, hey, Get get some um, resources now or get much better resources later. How are you going to plan things out? It's brilliant there. It's brilliant in Gold West. But the... Again, that really tension-filled tiling, trying to get the right cards, and a, a, a closed-hand drafting game where you have so much more control over your hand than normal because you don't just give away your whole hand. You keep things for yourself. In the two-player game, as I recall, since you only have one neighbor, you also just trash one and kick it out of the game. It's fantastic. I'm going to give it to Flourish, but that's a tough one. These are both really close. I could have gone either way, but I'm going to give it to Flourish. Okay, then... We've got Glasgow versus Royal Goods. Wow. So a little bit ago, we had Tybor the Builder um, and, you know, from designer Alexander Pfister. And now we've got Royal Goods, uh, which is part of the same uh, line that Alexander Pfister was doing for a while. These very simple little card games that have real surprise in depth. And um, Royal Goods is actually, if I recall correctly, it is the um, prequel. Or Tybor is basically a sequel to Royal Goods because they're set in the same Fister universe. Uh, anyway, though, it's a sh sharp little... It is a, a neat little engine-building game that features a fair dollop of push-your-luck, which is very unusual because, you know, I'm building more and more buildings that um, need resources to be able to run so I can produce different types of resources, so I can build more buildings, so I can score lots of points. And every round, um, we start revealing cards from the resource deck that represents the market that everybody has access to, which is where the resources to run our buildings come from. And we draw a certain number of cards until I think like two sunshine cards come out. And then we stop. 
And so we know we now know a little bit about the market because we then have to decide which buildings are we going to activate, where are we going to put our precious workers, depending on what has it, what's in the market. Because after we decide where our workers are going to go, then we have the afternoon phase where we draw a bunch more cards until I forget does the moons come out or more sun cards come out, something like that. And so it might be only two more cards draw, or another half a dozen cards might get drawn, and we have all the resources we need. So do you push your luck? Do you hope that in that second afternoon you'll get that last um, that ore you need to run this building? Yeah, I'm going to take a chance and run the building, or should I not and just go play it safe? It's really sharp, a very fun, satisfying, um, goods uh, chain production engine building game with some neat push your luck. So that's a lot of fun. Glasgow, right, okay. This is a fun two-player only game, and uh, it combines a couple of things. It's a tile layer. In case you didn't know, folks, from this episode, it should be pretty obvious. Tile laying is just about one of my favorite mechanisms of all time. If you make a good tile layer, I'm there for you. But anyway, um, the interesting thing is that you're not building your own little uh, section of Glasgow. It's a, it's a communal group thing, more like Carcassonne in that regard, which is interesting because often Jen and I find that can be kind of frustrating because we have opportunities to cut each other off and whatnot, and there's a little bit of that here, but not too terribly much. This is more about, hey, when um, as things get built up, you're creating opportunities for your opponent to be able to expand as well. You don't really cut each other off so much as well. But anyway, one half of the game is the tiling of this communal portion of Glasgow we're building. The other half is a time track. And I love time tracks as well, although they very rarely work for two. They're often poorly designed. Uh, and by time track, what I mean is it's not a fixed order of turn order. It's not I go, then you go, then I go, then you go, then I go, then you go. When it's my turn, I have to choose. I look at the time track, and I can move my little meeple farther along. And the further I go, the more access I give myself to stuff. Because however far I'm going to go, wherever I land, that's going to be a tile I'm going to grab so I can build. And the perfect tile for me might be like six away from where I am. And here's the deal. If I make that big jump and go ahead and grab that six, then it's your turn. You might take a bunch of little baby steps and you could get five tiles through the one that I got. And I gave that to you. So I can't jump that far. So what do I do instead? Do I jump forward two or three and get something else and then hope you don't take it? Because what if you value it too? So time track games are brilliant when they're done well, and this one works really well for two-player. And then it has a very sharp, um, you know, tiling, uh, you know, city-building thing going on as well. So these games are both really good. Really, really good. I think that's a tough one. I'm going to give it... Oh, my gosh, that's a tough one. Oh. You know what? I, I have to give it to Glasgow. Uh, because a game where it's a communal building space that Jen and I don't immediately dismiss out of hand, that's pretty rare. That means it's pretty special. Glasgow is the winner. Okay, then we've got Spirits of the Rice Paddy versus Raw. Um, what uh, many would rightly or arguably consider the greatest auction game of all time from Reiner Knizia. Raw is absolutely brilliant versus uh, Spirits of the Rice Paddy, a much newer game um, that is a very, very cool game where we are, um, you know, uh, you know, developing rice patties, and the thing about it is, we want to make our rice patties uh, laid out with channels of water between them, because the water flows from one rice patty to another, to another, to another. And if we can set things up smartly, so that we, um, you know, develop our our own 
farm, our own rice farm, uh, that works to the same cycles that are used in real life where, hey, the stuff is growing while it's flooded, and then when it empties out, we harvest there, and that lets us flood another place so we can grow more. And then the other thing about Spirits of the Rice Paddy, it comes with a nice, I mean, gosh, this game came out way before Terraforming Mars, I think, but it comes with a very nice, chunky, healthy deck of cards with all kinds of really cool special powers that change up the game uh, over and over again. And every time you play, you're going to get access to a different collection that's going to make the game feel very, very different. But again, what's very special about this game is the flow of water. It just feels so thematic. But Raw, on the other hand, like I said, is one of the greatest, if not the greatest, modern uh, auction board game there is. Uh, it's so smart. It's uh, it's really interesting because, you know, unlike most auction games, where, oh, I've just got my money, I keep it secret, I'll bid two, I'll bid three, or whatever. Um, instead, everybody can publicly see the bidding chips that everybody else has. And um, so you can see if I've got a five and a three, you know you can win if you play your six. And I can see you've got that six. But are you going to do that? Um, or are you going to go with your four? Because you know your four will beat my three, and you don't think I value it enough to use my five. And then on top of that, you know, we're bidding to get these uh, bundles of tiles that we're doing. All the different tiles score differently in, in fun, cool set collection ways. It's absolutely brilliant. This is a really good showdown. Jeez. I don't know, folks. Folks, let me know down. For anybody out there who has played Spirits of the Rice Paddy and Raw, am I crazy? D tell me down in the comments. If you disagreed with anything I said today, let me know. Because I am... I think... I think this is where we're going to call it quits, folks. I'm going to leave it with a cliffhanger because I just don't know. One of the greatest auctions of all time versus such an incredibly beautiful, thematically rich farming simulation. I, I just don't know, folks. So I'm going to leave it there. And like I said, it's going to be a cliffhanger. Let's go on ahead and save my progress. We were at 7%. What is the date today? Today is 4-12. Update. And, all right, so it's uh, progress update. You can see there's my progress meter right there. It's not very good. If I come back over here and look, nope, we didn't even crack 8% today, folks. But we'll probably crack 8% next episode. And we will resolve the cliffhanger of raw versus rice patties. And uh, in the meantime, though, folks, I want to say thank you very much for watching. Uh, hopefully you enjoyed the uh, video. Uh, if you want, like I said, you can click that over there on the left side of the screen to go watch all the other episodes in this series so far. I've been having a good time doing it. Hopefully you're enjoying it as well. But um, if you're already caught up, well, hey, there's some stuff on the right side of the screen you might want to check out as well. And if you just don't want to miss the next episode of The Rankening, hey, right there in the middle, you can go on ahead and subscribe to the channel and you'll know, ring the bell and all that kind of stuff. Anyway, thanks for watching, everybody. Talk to you later. I think... Um, I think I'm out of solar juice. Talk to you later. Bye-bye.